Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. And pray with me. Father, we turn our gaze to you. We open our hearts and lives as you enable us today. Lord, would you open our hearts and lives as we ask that we might see you for who you are, that we might hear your word, that we might be changed, that we might see the beauty in the face of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. You don't have to look very far or try very hard to, to, to recognize that, that we are living in a culture that is flavored and marked by, oh, we might say, a lack of civility. (laughs) We could just call it that, and we would be right. Uh, That's not something that's challenged. We see that all around us. There was an editor, a writer for a newspaper, trying to make sense of that and trying to explain it. And uh, she wrote an article that appeared in the Washington Post in in December of 2017. And in that article, the writer challenged the notion that Christians are facing a looming persecution in this country. She was trying to make sense of of those that call out and cry out and say, you're not hearing us. (laughs) We're being persecuted in some sense as this culture changes. She was trying to make sense of that, and and in doing so, she proposed uh, a challenge to that notion that Christians are facing a looming persecution. And she cites this statistic. The percentage of the U.S. population at large, not regionally identified, but at large, the percentage of the U.S. population in 2017 and members of Congress who self-identify as being Christians, that percentage has remained the same roughly for the past 50 years. Now, that's her assertion. Uh, I'm not sure what statistics lie behind that or research. She also said that that the percentage in the state legislatures is even higher than it was 50 years ago. Now, 
we're not going to go all the way down the road that she has opened. Uh, much of what we read in secular media can and should be debated. Uh, but what can't be debated, really, uh, even by that author, I presume, is that while there may not be looming persecution, there is at least increasing pressures, right? There are at least increasing pressures of a society that has little or no sympathy with our faith or what we believe or how we live. There are increasing pressures. On a global perspective, if we step that far back or the fly that high, we might see that on the one hand that we are hopeful that that there, the church is growing in much of the developing world. It's exploding in much of the developing world. But on the other hand, there are examples today of political oppression, economic hardship, and even violent persecution at the same time. In some parts of the world, there's open violence. Like last year, when 1,000 Christians were murdered in Nigeria. In other parts of the world where the Christian faith once flourished, there's societal decay or kind of a reversal of things going on. It's the world in which we live. It's the context in which we live out our faith and our lives. And the question that it all raises is how do we do that? How do we live in that world? How do we live in this world? How do we live in such a way that is God-honoring? that is true and noble and beautiful and lovely? How do we do that? How do we respond to opposition, whatever form it takes? Or maybe, how are we able to do so? How are we able to respond in a manner that reflects the beauty of the gospel? This Philippian letter that we are in is a picture of how what that looks like and how we get there. It's a letter, a tender letter, between a pastor and a church over miles of separation. If you've been with us or you know something about Philippians, you may know that Paul is writing from a prison, most likely Rome. He's writing in chains to, to a church, and the tenderness of the relationship is, comes throughout, all throughout the book. He talks about what has happened to him. That's where he begins. It's a bit unusual for Paul as he begins a letter to talk about himself. He talks about the God who called him, and then he rushes to the others that are reading this letter. But but he has paused for over 20 verses that we have looked at in the recent weeks to talk about what has happened to him. And if you... We're here, you were reminded last week that in prison, Paul has learned to set his eyes to fix his gaze on the world to come from inside prison walls. And that's why he says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's what's happened to me, Paul says. And now when we get to our text today, there's a, there's a shift. There's a transition Instead of talking about what has happened to him, he's now going to talk about what is happening to you, church. It's about you now. In light of what's happened to me, let's consider what is happening to you. And what, we, what he's going to ask his readers in asking us today is, if Paul says, 
because of what has happened to me, and as it has happened to me, I have fixed my eyes on the world to come. He wants to say and ask to us, as these same kinds of things happen to you, where are your eyes fixed? What are you looking at? And how do you live well with your eyes fixed on the things that are true and lovely and beautiful and more enduring than anything else in this world? That's what he wants us to do. When push comes to shove, where are you? That's what Paul is addressing in these few verses we'll look at today. When push comes to shove, where are you? And what do you do? And how do you stand firm is his language. He's going to make the case that there is a new way of responding to the pressures of a society that has no sympathy for our faith, that is grounded in a deepening appreciation for the privileged status that is ours, that has been conferred upon us by the grace of God. Another way of saying that is to the degree we take up or embrace our status in Christ, we will respond in a God-honoring way to the pressures around us. Another way to say that is where do we find courage that does not blink or concern that does not fade in the midst of opposition and pressures and maybe even someday persecution? Where do we find courage that does not blink and concern that does not fade? Well, with the time that we have, we're going to look at three parts of this story. One is the opposition that we face or that we will face. Paul is addressing that. There's opposition that we face. There's a posture that we are to take. And there's grace that we have received. So with our time, we'll we'll walk that road. Uh, There is opposition that we will face. If if you look at, at the text, you don't have to struggle to find this. In verse 28, he's talking about your opponents. He's writing to a church And he says, he calls a group of people your opponents, and they know who he's talking about. They have faced opposition. And interestingly, Paul will say in verse 30, that you are engaged in conflict. There's opposition and conflict. You are engaged, in fact, he calls it the same conflict. The same conflict that you saw that I had and now, and I still have. Get this then, Paul is in prison with chains, there's opposition to who he is because of the gospel. By the way, that's what this opposition is about. It's always, in this case, about the gospel, the claims of truth in a world that's not sure about that. But he's saying the opponents that you have, it's the same conflict. He, he will refer to false teachers, and we're going to see more of that as the letter continues. But But the opposition that Paul is facing in prison, he calls the same conflict that the church in Philippi, without chains, but with real opponents, it's the same. He says there's opposition there. What is happening to you is what he calls it. 
and ask where are our eyes fixed. You know, for us <clears throat> at this moment in time, uh, the pressures or the opposition may not be at the end of a sword or a gun or a badge. It may be just the sideward glances that you receive because of your stand for the truth. Or how you might be excluded or maybe even passed over for a promotion because, well, you are, you are from a previous generation. <laughs> Those of you holding and clinging to, to the ancient truths of the Christian, orthodox, historic Christian faith, you're from another generation. We have passed you by. You know, it may not sound like that. It may not even take on that face. But there are, <clears throat> there's ostracization. There's a suggestion that maybe, well, maybe you've lost your mind if you ever had it. <laughs> it maybe it's that kind of pressure or opposition, but it's real. Paul refers to the, what's going on in Philippi as false teachers. There are false ideas in the air. And we live in that world too. There are false ideas in the air, in the culture, in the media. We don't have to go very far. In our own hearts, <laughs> there are false ideas masquerading as truth. And Paul says, there's your opponent. That's opposition. How do we face that? How do we deal with that? How do we respond to it in a way that is God-honoring and fruit-bearing? How do we do that? Well, he's going to show us. But that's the opposition, just that Paul has told them what their view of life and death should be when he said to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now he says, here's how you live in the meantime. Until you die, until Christ is gained, you and I are in this world, and like Paul, we have remained. <laughs> he says, I find it desirable to go, but it's better that I stay, and here we are. And Paul now says, if that's your way of thinking, if you've, if you've grasped the truth and the beauty of who God is and who Christ is, and there's this hope that is yours in him and him alone, how do you live in the meantime? And in this sense, and in this case, in this instance, how do you live with courage and poise? How do, you, how do we get courage and poise into our lives? And that's what Paul's going to show us here. How do we get there? How do we take on a, um, a how do we live out a response to the pressures and the opposition around us in a way that is lovely? Well, he talks about the posture that we're supposed to take. That's verse 27. There's an opposition that we will face. There's a posture that we're to take. And here it is, verse 27. By the way, the, the, that sentence in our, in our Bibles begins with, in, in the translation before you, it begins with only. There's another translation that I love that, that reads like this. Just one thing. It's almost like keep the main thing the main thing at all times. And so Paul is saying just one thing. It's obviously based on what he's just said. You don't start, a, he's not starting a new topic. He's showing you us now how to apply what he's just said in the moment. Just one thing. Here's how we do this. And then he says, let your manner of life, verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. 
He says the same thing in Ephesians. Live a life worthy of the calling to which you've received. And in both cases, maybe written from the same Roman prison, perhaps. But what he is saying is not, hear this, he's not saying we are to live a life that makes us worthy. We can't live a life that makes us worthy of the love of the Father. That is, a, that is granted to us. It was while we were sinners that Christ loved us and died for us. So we don't live a life that somehow makes us worthy of his love. What he's saying is, when he says live a life, the manner of your life, be wor- let it be worthy of the gospel, he's saying in congruency with. Let it be congruent Let your life, the manner of your life, demonstrate the beauty of the gospel. Be consistent with the fact that that there is one who is lovely and good and beautiful, and it's not us. It is Christ who has given his life and his righteousness to us. And we're now called to live a life that, in some sense, reflects that. And that's what he wants his hearers to get. How do we reflect the beauty of Christ in the face of opposition? Instead of of vitriol or a theological grenade that we toss. How do we live a life that is lovely and beautiful? It's just one thing. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now... Uh, there's, a, there's a word picture buried in that phrase, manner of life. And we don't see it when we read the English. So I'm going to go Greek on you for a moment. Uh, it's a phrase that, that takes up the notion of a citizenship. He's talking about citizenship here. He's basically saying, when he says your manner of life... He, he could actually be saying, and, and under, translated accurately, live as citizens of your true home. Now, um, if you were here when we started the series a few weeks ago, you may, you may remember the fact that Philippi was in Macedonia. Philip of Macedonia, that's Philippi, Macedonia. It was a Roman colony. It was one of 16 uh, colonies that were established by Caesar Augustus that were granted a special status in the Roman Empire. And if you lived in Philippi, you you were considered a citizen of Rome. So Philippi was referred to as the soil of Italy. Now, they used Latin when they said that, but um, it was considered the soil of Italy. So when you walked the streets of Philippi, it was as if you were walking the streets of Rome as a citizen there with all the rights and responsibilities of a citizen of Rome. So the Philippians got this. They got it better than we get it when we read the English. Because what Paul is saying here is, How do you live this way? You live knowing that your real citizenship is in heaven and you're living your life in this world. And that's true for us too, by the way. Our real citizenship is in heaven. And so it's not Roman citizenship, it's citizenship in heaven that we bear as we walk the streets of Williamson County like the Philippians walk the streets of Philippi. He says, live like citizens. 
with the benefits and the responsibilities. There are responsibilities that go with that citizenship. And your responsibility, Christian, is to model your life after the pattern laid down. To consider how you respond to the oppression and the criticisms and the critiques and the persecution from the world in which you live. You have a responsibility to respond to it in a way that is consistent with the gospel, that is true, lovely, and beautiful. You're citizens. There's another word picture that he gives us here. If you look down, it's in the same verse, verse 27, where he says uh, to live side by side, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. That image of striving side by side is actually a military picture. It's a picture of a soldier. Or even that language comes from the world of athletics. In, in Rome, and in, in that culture at that time, uh, images like the javelin and the hammer and the discus and wrestling, those are warfare images that we've made athletic images for our own selves. But that's the picture in the midst of it all, that we're, we're side by side, standing side by side. We're not to let the opposition divide us. Instead, let the pressures from our opponents draw us into a tighter and a deeper and a stronger unity. And if you've ever watched a, a war movie, you will see scenes where those engaged in conflict will be standing side by side and they will pull together to form a unit. And that's the picture that Paul gives us to say, here is how you live this out. There's a certain posture that you are to take. It is side by side. It is striving together. One mind, one soul is actually the word there. William Barclay, I don't agree with everything William Barclay wrote, but he did say this really well. The outward characteristic of Christians is that when others break, they stand erect. And when others collapse, they stand shoulder to shoulder and go on. We stand side by side with a selfless solidarity because we are in this together. You know, the reality is sometimes there are, there are people that, that profess faith in Christ. They're harder to stand side by side with than some others in this world. <laughs> and yet we're called to stand side by side in solidarity with those who profess the name of Christ. To do so with humility and grace and poise and purpose. Correcting one another. Sharpening our understandings. But recognizing that there is one head of the church, and he's not Presbyterian. Jesus Christ is the one who owns us, and we are his. And we are side by side in this life in this world. We're side by side with selfless solidarity. But get this, if this military image is true, we are face to face with an enemy. We are to love our enemies, we're to pray for our enemies, and we are to face them with a courage that does not blink, with a poise that is lovely and beautiful. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no one can read the New Testament without getting the impression that the Christian church is a kind of army or that it is engaged in a great contest, a test of endurance, a striving for a prize. Struggle, fight, contention is an essential part of all the teaching. The same Paul wrote to another church and said, be watchful, stand firm. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Near the end of his life, probably the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, he wrote to Timothy and said and reminded him that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is something that is going to happen and is laid down as a universal rule. And Paul summons the Philippian believers and us today to respond to those who despise our faith and our Savior with a distinctive blend of boldness and humility, neither intimidated nor belligerent, neither fearful of those outside nor frustrated with those inside the church. (laughs) Striving together, side by side, not frightened by your opponents is his language. That word, that word not fright, that frightening word, that, that word was used outside of the New Testament to describe horses startled into a panic. Get the picture? <laughs> That's not you. <laughs> That's not us. Startled into a panic. It doesn't mean we're not tempted to panic or that we're not inclined to lob theological grenades or to do things that are full of vitriol and defensiveness and oppression ourselves. We're not given that posture. We're not to be frightened. We're to have a kind of confidence that comes out of the gospel or a poise, as it's been called. So someone wrote this that I loved. Real confidence is in rare supply. Playing it cool is one thing. It's easy to straighten your shoulders, to arch your back, to stick out your chest and talk tough. But genuine emotional confidence and security of soul is hard to find. We are to show courage that does not blink when opponents confront us along with concern for fellow Christians with whom we stand shoulder to shoulder. And where do we get that? We've talked so far about the opposition and you may be tasting or experiencing different degrees of that. There may be more to come, even in this part of the country. There's opposition out there. We're we're told to take a posture in the midst of that, and that is uh, as a citizen who lives, whose citizenship is in another world. But in this world, we're engaged in conflict, and it's side by side, and we're striving together, and it's face to face with an opposition. So how do we do that? Well, Paul doesn't leave you hanging. And the Philippians may have been asking that very question when they read this section in verse 29. They read like we do today. It has been granted to you. 
Now, that phrase contains the word grace. It has been granted to you. The word grace is buried in that word, meaning this, that there are gifts and graces that you have received. And this is, this is how we take hold of all of this and make it our own. It's recognizing that we are not in the trenches alone with one another, but that God has visited us. He is in there with us. And he has gifted us and graced us with two ways. One you know about and one will surprise you. The Philippians knew that their faith, as he says in verse 29, has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe in him. That is a granting, that's a gracious gift. Paul says your faith is a gift and here's another instance where he does. The reason you believe, if you believe this story, if you have united yourself to the promise of the gospel, it's because God has given you eyes to see, has opened your eyes, and that faith is a gift. It has been granted to you to believe and to trust in him alone. It's good news to be believed. It's, it's a relying on Jesus and what he has done. And the only reason we do is because of what he's done for us, to open our eyes and given us this faith, the instrument by which we take hold of the righteousness of Christ, and it is ours. It's who we are. It's our identity and, and our being. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should believe in him. But that's not all. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only that you believe in him, but that you also suffer for his sake. Because you were engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You were engaged in this conflict. It has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. We could put it like this. Suffering for Christ is not accidental. Nor does God merely tolerate, tolerate that suffering that he watches in his providence. That suffering, whatever form it takes, subtle or blatant, sideways glances or a sword, is a gift from God. Really? I could do without that one. Hear it this way, though. Paul is not saying, nowhere in the scriptures does any author of scripture say that we are to look for suffering, that we are to create suffering, that we're to invite suffering. The suffering that we experience is, is due to the gospel. The gospel offends, but you don't, is, is the message. The gospel will always offend, and it will inevitably result in some opposition of some sort. And along with that is suffering. So while we don't invite it and we don't instigate it, if I could be so bold to say, we welcome it. We, we don't simply grin and bear it if we can grin. But there's a posture that we are to take that we in some sense welcome it if we understand 
that the suffering and the opposition that we face is for the gospel's sake, for Christ's sake, is Paul's language. It's for Christ's sake that we would suffer. And what does that mean? Well, he's going to talk a little later in Philippians more on this very topic, and he's going to suggest, and and not just suggest, declare (laughs) that we share in the sufferings of Christ. It's not that Christ's suffering was inadequate and it needs yours and mine to accomplish what it was intended to do. But there's a sense in which when we believe in Christ, we believe into Christ, we're united to him and we receive his righteousness and we participate in his sufferings. And that is life in this world as citizens of a world to come that is broken into this one. Sinclair Ferguson said, suffering is the friction that polishes our graces. Without it, without suffering, we would be all the poorer as reflectors of the image of his son. Apparently, God is prepared to go to any lengths to make us more like his son. The cross proves that. We can be sure he will stop at nothing to change us. Suffering is but one of his instruments. You see, when I suffer, when we suffer, when anyone suffers for the name of Christ, there's there's a settling effect. What do I believe? What is true? What is lovely? And what is enduring? And when those take shape in my head and my heart, there is a reflection to the world around of what is true, lovely, and beautiful. You know, people watched martyrs die for their faith and they couldn't make sense of it. I mean, you had a chance to change your mind. You had a chance to deny that profession. But you chose the folly of standing firm. You know, there were, um, there were two thieves on both sides of Christ on the cross, right? One we know about, one we know that he, he, he saw what was going on and responded apparently with saving faith. Today you will be with me in paradise. There was another one who watched and couldn't make sense of that. Couldn't make sense of his own death, life. Couldn't make sense of it. But to see it clearly and to, see, and to understand it, the cross makes sense of life in this world, of a longing for a world to come, of the shame that marks our lives, and Christ deals with that. Suffering contains and can contain a note of encouragement and assurance. What is that? That his grace is being seen in our lives. If you are suffering for the gospel in the name of Christ, take heart that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is showing up in your life. But would it be that and not our vitriol? Would it be that rather than getting even? Would it be the love of Christ that endures, that is that steadies us in the midst of the storm. You know, there's a constant resetting of our hearts continuously. 
our union with Christ is an on, it's a true permanent thing, but we're, we're moment by moment living in the reality of that. And in the face of suffering and opposition, there's another resetting our hearts continuously on what is true and lovely and beautiful. And Paul says there's something remarkable that happens. Verse 28, he says, as you do this, church, as you stand side by side, striving together, one mind, one soul, together in, in love with the one who loves you, it will be a clear sign to them of your salvation. It'll be a clear sign that there's something different about you, but it's also a clear sign of the one who saves you, your salvation, this from God. You see, we've seen this before. Think about it. Where have we seen a concern for others combined with fearlessness in the face of opposition resulting in a willingness to suffer? Where have we seen that? Jesus Christ saw the sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion. There's concern for others. He was fearless in the face of opposition. He set that face to Jerusalem. And in the face of his opposition and betrayal and arrest and trial, he did tremble, but it was not in the face of his enemies and opposition. It was at the wrath of God. We don't get any hint of Jesus trembling before his accusers or those that imprisoned him and the mockery of a trial and the cruelty of the crucifixion. We get no hint of his fearing his oppressors, his opposition. Isaiah tells us he was despised, rejected my bin, oppressed, afflicted, and opened not his mouth. He also tells us he wasn't merely rejected by men. He was smitten by God. And because he was smitten by God, when we face our enemies' opposition face to face, there's another face. There's another face in that picture. And as we see our opposition and we look in their eyes and we're confronted by their, their, their persecution even, with the eyes of faith, we are there to behold another face. A face who was concerned and is concerned. And his concern combined with a fearless to face the opposition resulting in a willingness to suffer, but was raised from the dead. And it's that face that we begin to see in the midst of persecution and opposition. And it's for him and by him and through him that we stand side by side, that we strive together, taking hold of the one who is with us in the moment. We sang it. You sang it moments ago. Let me remind us. <laughs> Fear not, I am with you. I, oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will give you aid. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. 
When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Whatever persecution is coming or will come, whatever opposition you're facing because of your faith in Christ or your standing with him, some of you are looking for a purpose in this world that's worth standing for. This is it. That the God who made this world has broken into this world. There's a world to come that as an outpost in this world, the church, the kingdom of God has broken in and he has come for you. He has come to make you his own and to take you into this, this family of his in this world who would reflect to a watching world the beauty and the goodness and the truth that is the gospel. That there is something more compelling than the opposition that comes our way. It's the compelling love of Christ who has come to make all things new, including your heart and mine. As we live out our faith in this world, it can be with a courage that does not blink and a concern that does not fade because it's his love, it's his face that sees us through. And as we also sang, he comes to hold you by his side. As we stand side by side, striving together, we are held by the one who holds us by his side for his glory in this world. Father, would you work into us such a grasp of this reality that we begin to rethink how we live in the meantime? Because you have convinced us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here we are needing and wanting to live in the meantime. How do we do that? Oh, Lord, would you help us? Would you make vivid to our eyes the beauty of the gospel that we may see with the eyes of faith the face of the one who loves us, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.